Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about how India's relations with the US will change under the Biden administration. We also take a quick look at the fire that broke out at the Serum Institute of India. But first, we talk about the web series Tandav. The Amazon Prime show has been embroiled in a lot of controversy since the past few days. A number of politicians had expressed outrage against it because they felt it showed Hindu deities in a bad light and used casteist scenes and dialogues. First, an FIR was filed against the makers of the show in Lucknow on Sunday night. And after that, several other FIRs were filed against them in UP, Madhya Pradesh and Maharashtra. Moreover, the Information and Broadcast Ministry had also summoned the makers of the show. And after two meetings with them and fearing arrest, the show deleted two of its scenes. This made it the first web series streaming on a major OTT platform to edit its content after direct intervention from the government. In this segment, we speak to Krishan Kaushik, who among other things also reports on the media for the Indian Express about what implications this has on other shows and the kind of hold that the INB ministry has over OTT platforms right now. Krishan, before we talk about anything else, could you first talk about what led to the outrage against the show? Uh, well, what led to the outrage depends upon who's outraging. But uh, this series was released, actually dumped on Amazon Prime on Friday, Tandav. It has Efeli Khan in the lead and Jishan Ayub also in the lead. It's a political drama. It revolves around an ambitious politician, young politician who is son of a, the incumbent prime minister and a student leader in a university called the VNU in that. In the series, there were two particular scenes that were mentioned in the first FIR that was enlisted against it in Lucknow on Sunday night. Uh, these two scenes were both part of the first episode. In the first scene, a protagonist whose name Shiva is actually playing the role of Lord Shiva or Bolinath in a college play. And he's discussing with Narad Muni in that play how to increase his followers compared to Lord Ram. And in that conversation, <clears throat> while discussing it, he uses a cuss word, which is all, which was already beeped out. But that was one scene that was supposed to be objectionable. The second scene is when the incumbent prime minister, he's talking to a Dalit politician and he uses certain disparaging language towards his caste, which was found to be objectionable in the FIR, as it was mentioned. These two scenes have been cut. So outrage has basically been that, you know, the show has hurt religious sentiment and it was also anti-caste. So these were the two allegations against it. But immediately after the FIR, basically actually before even the FIR was filed on Sunday night, the INB ministry had already called the makers of the show and Amazon Prime to come and give an explanation about the complaints that it was receiving. And the first meeting happened on Monday morning through virtual uh, con- through video conferencing. The second meeting happened on Tuesday. Uh, the director was present in both the meetings. Amazon Prime was present in both the meetings. And after the first meeting, the director and the producer of the show, they apologized on Twitter through a statement. After the second meeting, they again apologized for unintentionally hurting anybody's sentiments. And they also announced after the second meeting that they're willing to ma- make certain edits to the show and thanked the INB ministry for their guidance and support in that statement. And as things stand, could you talk about what all is one not allowed to show in movies, TV shows and web series in India? 
So first, uh, the basic restrictions on free speech that are uh, you know mentioned in the constitution that applies to everybody, whether it's TV, whether it's film, whether it's journalism, whether it's uh, OTT platform shows, that is applicable to everyone. For movies, otherwise, they have a film certification, the CBFC, the Film Certification Board, which is also called the Censor Board, of course. They're not mandated to make or actually suggest edits. They're usually mandated only to provide certification, but they do recommend edits. They can recommend, you know, changing certain dialogues, cutting on certain scenes, and usually filmmakers uh, comply with that and they get the certification after that. For TV, they have an industry self-regulatory body, which is called the BCCC which is for the general entertainment. And for news, there is the NBSA. So the programming that's allowed on television, it is actually mentioned in the programming code and the advertising code, which is part of the Cable TV Network Regulations Act. If there's any violation, either a complainant can go to these industry bodies, which is either BCCC or NBSA. Otherwise, they can also write to the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting. The INB Ministry also has an in-house mechanism, which is called the EMCC. Electronic Media Monitoring Center, in which they continuously track if any particular channel is in violation of the programming code or advertising code. So if there is a complaint, whether in-house or from the outside, there can be a meeting of the inter-ministerial committee, which has joint secretaries from various ministries that are involved. And then the channel is given a chance to uh, make its case. And only after that is a verdict given. The verdict can give the punishment or it can say there was nothing wrong with it. So that's the process for television. For uh, OTT, apart from the restrictions on free speech that are mentioned in the constitution, there are no specific code of what they are allowed or not allowed to show at the moment, which is what the ministry has been telling the OTT players that they should come up with a self-regulatory mechanism. So they should come up with a self-regulatory body, which also mentioned a code of what should be allowed to be shown on these platforms and what should not be allowed. However, that is still stuck for the past one year. A body was created. They came up with a code. They came up with certain mechanisms. Earlier, I think around September, uh, the government was unhappy with that and they wrote a letter to the body which was created by IAMAI, which includes all these OTT platforms. And they said the mechanism that they have suggested lacks transparency, there are issues of conflict of interest, and the code is not clear enough. So that is where it stands. So apart from the restrictions on free speech, there are no specific laws that apply to the OTT platforms to regulate the content at the moment. So in this case, after the two meetings with the INB ministry, the show decided to cut the two scenes. But what would have happened if they didn't decide to cut the two scenes? Does the INB ministry have any authority, any power to do anything against them? So uh, last time we discussed this, Shashank, you might remember it was uh, in November. In November, the government had assigned all OTT platforms and uh, digital news to the INB ministry. Previously, no ministry had oversight over these two industries. So uh, now IMB Ministry does have direct oversight over the OTT platforms for the content. But unlike, let's say, when we talk about television, every television channel, they need either an uplinking or a downlinking of both the licenses to broadcast a channel in the country. With OTT platforms, no such license is required. So a license is basically a contract between the government and the channel, right? For an OTT platform, no such contract exists. So there is a vacuum. There's actually a legal vacuum at the moment in how the government can usually, as they would usually, uh, let's say, persuade or pressure a channel, there's a legal vacuum in how they can do it with OTT platforms at the moment. However, uh, of course, I have no inside information about what transpired in the meeting, but it is safe to assume that, you know, when a government calls, it can be intimidating at times if the government wants uh, wants to suggest that you make certain changes. 
But whatever happened in the meeting, the thing is the makers, they, they capitulated and they agreed to make these certain changes by cutting out these two scenes. So this marks the first incident after November when INB caught, uh, let's say, oversight of the OTT platforms. Marks the first incident of direct intervention by the government after which two scenes have been cut. So what implications do we then see this having on other OTT platforms and shows that they put out? The implications uh, can be quite dire if one is to see it that way. I mean, it sets a precedent. It gives government the, let's say, understanding that they can take a similar step in future as well if something is not found that the government might like. Okay, in this case, government has said they received certain complaints, but tomorrow, without any prescribed manner on how such things should be taken care of, like there's the IMC for TV channels, without a certain mechanism, I mean, the government can call any platform from tomorrow for any particular show that they might find objectionable. And they can always say we receive complaints against it. Now, even apart from these implications, Christian says that there are also concerns within the government that the OTT platforms have been pushing certain boundaries in terms of the kind of content they put out, especially when we compare it to what is usually allowed on TV. The shows uh, were pushing certain boundaries, whether in terms of you know showing graphic content, whether in terms of showing particular ideas that couldn't be allowed on television shows. So I think there will be a concern within the industry now on how far they can push, on how much they can fight. Again, in the absence of any uh, legal backing, I'm not sure how the conversation takes place now, but it's still a concern. But the concern from the government side, from what I understand in my conversations with people who are in the know, these shows, they become political controversies. And yes, this is the first incident when a scene or two scenes have been cut. But a larger concern in the minds of the government is that there are other OTT platforms and uh, not Amazon Prime, not Hotstar, and uh, not Netflix, which the government has mentioned. I mean, officials from the government have mentioned to me in confidence that they believe these platforms have usually have a very good quality control. Compared to them, there are many smaller OTT players where there's a lot of sexual, very graphic sexual content. And government is very concerned about that because it's freely available. It is available to even kids, underage kids who are at an impressionable age. So that is a larger concern for the government about how to check that kind of content. However, let's assume even if tomorrow there's a self-regulatory mechanism for the OTT platforms that comes up. Even then, without any legal backing, the government does not have anything to punish them with. Like, you know, with with a TV channel, they can suspend your license, which means you go off air. With an OTT platform, they will have to suspend your, uh, like they can have to suspend your link, which I think is uh, very tough in this day and age to really ensure that. And that might not even be the commensurate punishment they might be looking for. So I think uh, there is thinking within the government that they will or they might have to bring in a law for the larger industry about how it will be managed. And also now, even though those two scenes are cut, what happens to the FIRs that have been registered against the makers? Those two are independent, uh, you know, processes because in this, INB ministry called uh, the makers and the platform for a conversation. After the conversation, the makers decided to cut two scenes. The FIRs are independent. What happens to them, they'll take their own course. Dear listeners, sorry for this interruption, but before we move on to the rest of the show, I just wanted your quick attention. One of the big reasons people say they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better. It provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture. 
And there is perhaps no other place that does that better than Indian Express's explained section. We on three things refer to the section regularly and it helps us make this show. If you're a regular reader of Indian Express, you know how useful the explained section can be, especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts. You can log on to indianexpress.com slash explained and access the coverage 24-7. Explained by Indian Express, where news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject. Now, back to the show. And next, we talk about the change in the US administration. With Joe Biden becoming the new president of the United States, many are wondering how this will impact US and India's ties. To talk about this more, our producer Anantnath Sharma spoke to Indian Express's Shubhajit Roy. Here's Anant. On Wednesday, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States of America. In his inaugural speech and the swearing-in ceremony, he vowed to repair America's alliances and engage with the world once again. This comes at a time when the US is dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and increasing political polarization. So how is India's relationship with the US right now? And how has it traditionally been? What does the administration change mean for the bilateral ties? We talked to Shubhajit Roy, associate editor at the Indian Express, who reports on matters of foreign affairs, to know the answers to these questions and more. Shubhajit, to start off, Joe Biden has been a politician for a really long time. He's had a prolific career. He's been the vice president. What is his background when it comes to India? And what is his legacy as a politician and a diplomat? Well, you see, Biden has been in U.S. politics for almost five decades. He first joined the U.S. Senate in 1973. But from India's perspective, in the last 20 years, he's been actively involved with the India-U.S. relations. He joined the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1997. And he soon became the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is like the Rajya Sabha's uh, External Affairs uh, Ministry Standing Committee. He was the chair of that committee at the Senate twice. First was between 2001 to 2003. And second time was between 2007 and 2009. Now, if you really notice, these two periods were the ones where two key events happened between Indo-US relations. In 2001, then US President Bill Clinton, he visited India in March 2001. Shubhajit says that scene is one of the landmark events in Indo-US ties. It happened after the Bokhran nuclear test in 1998 and Clinton's visit is when the bilateral ties really took off. And then again, between 2007 and 9 was the time when the Indo-US nuclear deal came to fruition. It was signed between the two countries. At that time, again, Biden was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair. Now, what this means is he's been involved in the Indo-US ties very uh, strongly, very deeply. In fact, during, the, uh, during his days at the, as the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he lobbied with the Democrats as well as Republicans to pass the Indus nuclear deal at a time when many of the Democrats, his own party members, were against the deal. 
including then Senator Barack Obama. So Barack Obama, in fact, was planning to introduce a killer amendment, which he was dissuaded by some of his Democrat colleagues, including Joe Biden. Much later came the Obama-Biden administration. Shubhajit tells us that there were a couple of events during this time that are noteworthy for Indo-US ties. First was the Obama administration supporting India for a permanent membership at the UN Security Council. That's the first time US ever did that. Second was the US designating India as a major defense partner, which is a unique nomenclature given that this applies to no other country but India. All in all, Biden has been very, very key in deepening Indo-US ties in the last 20 years, during which time he's been very active first as a Senate you know, Foreign Relations Committee at the, at the committee and then as the Vice President. So what has the Indian government's reaction been to Biden being sworn in? And traditionally, how has our ties been with the US? The Prime Minister, he himself tweeted on Wednesday night itself, within minutes of Biden and Kamala Harris being sworn in. He, and he said, and I quote, I look forward to working with him to strengthen Indo-US strategic partnership. The partnership is based on shared values. We have substantial and multifaceted bilateral agenda, growing economic engagement and vibrant people-to-people linkages. Committed to working with President Biden to take the Indo-US partnership to even greater heights. Now, what this means is that India has certain important agenda. It sees common issues as shared interests. Uh, for example, on China, uh, when it comes to dealing with a rising belligerent China on the horizon, both India and the US, they have similar interests. When it comes to growing economic engagement, India and US again have shared interests. And of course, vibrant people-to-people linkages. What it means is that every Indian middle-class family has at least a family, a friend, member or a friend or an acquaintance in the United States. They're either studying or working or living there. All of us have that. So that's a rich linkage that the two countries enjoy. And if you, if you really see, there are almost two lakh Indian students who are studying in the U.S. currently. And skilled professionals on H-1B visas and other category visas, India is really high up the ladder. The outgoing U.S. ambassador to India, Kenneth Juster, in his farewell speech, said there have been frictions and frustrations on the Indo-U.S. trade and investment front. We asked Shobhajit that at this time and with this history, what does the new Biden administration mean for Indo-U.S. ties? And what are some of the short-term challenges that this administration would be focusing on when it comes to India? Now, uh, he very openly talked about growing restrictions by India on market access for certain U.S. goods and services, increasing tariffs, new limitations on the free flow of data, and a less-than-predictable regulatory environment for investors. Now, that on the trade front, that is going to be the challenge. Although Biden administration will not expected to follow America first uh, approach. But there are some inherent tendencies of protectionism that might shape the Biden administration's approach as well. Apart from that, the challenges would also be on Russia because India is in course of buying 
the uh, Russian-made S-400 air defense system, which U.S. doesn't want India to buy. And it says that uh, it complicates the security environment for the U.S. Uh, U.S., if it supplies the technology, uh, that can be compromised. If India already has Russian systems, and uh, that is going to be a big challenge, how the two uh, countries deal with this issue where future acquisition of uh, more sophisticated technology from the U.S. might be compromised. And, of course, the challenge while related to uh, human rights will again be a major challenge because in the last four years, Indian government, uh, New Delhi, did not get a rebuke of sorts from the Trump administration, whether it was the issue of CAA, NRC, or Jammu Kashmir and the human rights situation there. The U.S. government did actually look the other way, although it made some perfunctory statements, but there were some noises which were made in the U.S. Congress, nothing more than beyond that. With the Biden-Harris administration, that might change. How it will change and how it will change the attitudes from India, that is something is to be watched. But there is one thing on which there would be a common talking point is on China. And on China, both sides have a similar view. There's a bipartisan consensus in the U.S. as well that China is a strategic rival, is a threat. So in that situation, India and the U.S. can sort of work together to deal with that challenge. One last question before we close this segment. How do the next four years under Biden look like for India and U.S.? You really see the reference of the readouts of the statements that have come out from the two sides. India and U.S. would like to cooperate in at least five or six baskets. And they are the strategic basket, the education basket, the health basket, trade and economy basket, and environment, energy, and climate change basket. So on all these issues, India and the U.S. would cooperate. Of course, the new U.S. president would be dealing with a raging pandemic which has claimed more than 4 lakh lives in the U.S. and also a sort of a battered economy and a divided society and politics. Now, India would obviously come in as a health sector collaboration would be very high on agenda, uh, be it vaccines, be it other issues. And the two sides would sort of take it forward. Biden administration has already announced uh, rejoining the Paris climate change and the World Health Organization. So it's also regaining America's leadership and also uh, in engaging in multilateral fora where India is very much part of it because India is part of the UN Security Council for the next two years. So India would want a much more deeper engagement bilaterally as well as multilaterally with the United States. So that is something that will sort of overall guide the relationship between New Delhi and Washington. And in the end, we talk about the fire at the Serum Institute. Yesterday, at least five persons were killed in a fire that broke out on the campus of the Serum Institute of India in Pune. Serum Institute is the company manufacturing the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine called Covishield being used in India's COVID-19 inoculation drive. Though the CEO of the institute, Adar Poonawala, clarified that the fire will not impact the vaccine production. 
The fire brigade team found the bodies of five persons, including one woman, after the blaze was brought under control. Meanwhile, Maharashtra Chief Minister Uddhav Thakre announced that he will visit the institute unit today to take stock of the situation. And the institute announced a sum of Rs 25 lakh each for the families of the five deceased. Prime Minister Modi also offered his condolences, saying that he is anguished by the loss of lives and prays that those injured recover at the earliest. You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Shashank Bhargav, and as always was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. If you like this show, then you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at indianexpress.com. 